we will be coming again to this character of Jacob, who will be the center of our focus over the next several weeks and months. His father Isaac, his mother Rebecca, his brother Esau. Let's look together beginning in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. What do you think is the dominant religion in the United States today? What view of God, of man, of salvation, is the one that you think is held by most people in our society, the the most people in our culture? Well, according to Christian Smith who uh, used to be a professor at UNC Chapel Hill, the dominant religion among America's youth is this one. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. In a study that he conducted among teenagers, he found that it did not matter whether he was looking at teenagers that were raised in conservative evangelical homes or whether he was looking at teenagers who were raised in irreligious, secular homes. The trend was the same. Whatever they professed, when he dug deep, he found that this was the common theme that was pervasive among these teenagers. If it's not already the dominant religion of America, I think it is safe to say that moralistic, therapeutic deism will be the dominant religion of our country in just a few years. Many people who claim to be Christians, many people who claim to be Muslims, many people who claim to be Jews, many people who claim to be Mormons, many people who even claim to be agnostics, Once you talk to them about what they actually believe, we find they are adherents of this religion. What is it? It is moralistic. It is the religious belief that whether we go to heaven or to hell is determined by whether or not our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. If we're good enough, if we don't go around killing people, if we're not really bad, we'll probably go to heaven. For really bad, we'll go to hell. And most of these people don't believe in a literal hell. They, they think that what that means is that we'll probably just cease to exist, that, that we will be um, no longer here. 
This is the view that most people in our culture have of salvation. Don't be really bad, or if you do do something really bad, you need to find a way to make up for it. You need to find a way to make it right. And if you can do that, you're okay. It's moralistic. It's also therapeutic. These people believe that the main reason we should seek God is so that He can help us with our problems, that He can help us be better at this life, that we should pursue God so that we can have the fulfillment we need to do better in our jobs and to achieve our dreams. Spirituality is important because it's part of a holistic lifestyle like eating well and exercising and having meaningful relationships. Religion isn't the most important thing in life. It's it's one piece of the pie. God is there to help us with our problems. This religion is a form of deism. That is, apart from me going to God to find help with my problems, He actually has very little else to do with my life. God is up there doing what what God does, and and I live my life here and pursue the things I want to pursue, and, and I call on Him when I need Him. This is the religion of America, moralistic, therapeutic deism. The God of the Bible, the God who really is, is very different than this. We have already seen in our study of Romans 3 and 4 that the moralistic view of God and the moralistic view of salvation is very wrong. If our good deeds must outweigh our bad deeds, we're in trouble. God says that there are none who do good, not even one. In and of ourselves, we are wicked. We are inclined towards evil. Our righteous deeds will never outweigh our unrighteous ones. Indeed, we have zero in the righteous category because even our best deeds are counted as filthy rags in the sight of God. Moralism says that we must be more good than bad. The God of the Bible says we must be holy as He Himself is holy. Jesus said we must be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. The standard for heaven is not you must be kind of good. You need to be at least better than average. You need to at least be better than other people. No, the standard for heaven is we must be perfect, inwardly perfect, outwardly perfect, perfect in our thoughts, perfect in our words, perfect in our actions. And since we are not perfect... We're all sinners. Salvation must be all of grace. It must be fully and completely accomplished in Jesus Christ. Paul explained to us in Romans 3 and 4 that if salvation is not 100% by the grace of God through faith in Jesus, God cannot remain God and bless sinners like us. Moralism is a lie. The dominant religion of our culture is a lie. As we come to Genesis 25 and these two verses before us, we're going to see that deism is a lie too. The God of the Bible is not a God who is aloof from His creation. He's not a God who has little to do with with this world and our lives. He's not a God who's up in heaven twiddling His thumbs or preoccupied with other concerns. Our God is a God who is intimately actively involved in every single aspect of His creation. All things are from Him. 
All things are through Him. All things are to Him. His eyes see every centimeter of His universe. His presence is not lacking in any place. He is working all things, all things, all things, big things, small things. He's working all things according to the purpose of His will. The therapeutic view of God is particularly blown to pieces by the two verses we're about to look at. Why? Because it becomes very clear here that God does not exist for Jacob and Esau, but that Jacob and Esau exist for God. Their birth, their lives are a part of God's sovereign plan, a part of a purpose that He is working out for His glory. In these two verses, we do not find a God who is man-centered, who exists for our sake, who, who is hoping to have some place in our lives. No, instead we find a God who is controlling the lives of men so that His purposes and His desires are accomplished. Church, we must come to the place where we realize who it is that is God and who it is that isn't. We need to understand who it is that is at the center of the universe and who is not. I need to be reminded, probably hourly, (laughs) that this world does not revolve around me. If I ceased to exist, this world and our God would not cease to exist too. Had God chosen not to create me, His purposes would still have been accomplished. World history still would have continued unfolding with no interruptions and God would have gotten along just fine without me. God does not need me. I need Him. He does not exist for my happiness. I exist as an expression of His. It is absolutely true and gloriously true that God has promised His children that He will bless them forever. God has humbled Himself. The God of the universe has humbled Himself to become a servant to us. As we heard this morning when Mark read from Mark, Jesus said that He came not to be served, but to give, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And so it's an awesome truth that the God of the universe is actively working on our behalf. The God of the universe is serving His people. The God of the universe is making us happy. But there is a big difference between saying that God has chosen to love us and chosen to bless us and saying that God exists to love us and exists to bless us. God does not exist for us. And even His choice to love us and His choice to bless us is ultimately a choice He makes for His glory. It's His awesome attributes that are being displayed when He chooses to love us. It is God showing off when He chooses to bless us. It's His character that is being exalted before our eyes, before the eyes of His angels, before the eyes of God Himself. God is good. Everything about God is good. And it is right for God to express all of His goodness. 
His power, His wisdom, His creativity, His righteousness, His love, all of these things mark God. And because these are good things, it is good that He, that he give expression to them. You and I and everything that ever was or ever will be is a part of God fulfilling His purpose of expressing His own glorious character for His own glorious happiness. We exist for the glory of God. That's how it should be. I hope we have this high view of God here at Mount Hermon. And I hope it makes us very happy. (laughs) I hope we realize that it's because the universe works this way that we benefit greatly. For people who do not have that high view of God, verses 22 and 23 are very difficult. And that's because these two verses teach doctrines that fly in the face of man's self-centeredness and pride. These verses are about predestination. These verses are about divine election. These two doctrines are, are right here. And when we understand that all exists for God's glory as an expression of His awesome character, these doctrines fit right into place. They they make sense to us. But if we think that God exists for our benefit solely, that that's His purpose, that that it's all about us, we will never be able to accept the truths of these verses. So let's look at them together. We left off last time with verse 21. Rebecca was barren. For 20 years, she and Isaac waited for a child. Isaac interceded for his wife. Isaac prayed for Rebekah. And God heard Isaac's prayer, and she conceived. Now in verse 22, we get a surprise. In the ESV, the first six words are, the children struggled together within her. The children, right? Rebecca is having twins. In our culture, many mothers learn that they're having twins when they go for an ultrasound and are, are given the news by a doctor. But for Rebecca, this was something that, that she would have discovered over time as, as she felt what was happening within her own womb. You could probably imagine the the excitement and the, the nervousness and the, the, the conflagration of, of different feelings that must have overcome her and, and Isaac as they realized that, that they had not only one, but two children. After 20 years of waiting, two children on the way. But at some point, this excitement began to be mixed with anxiety. and It began to be mixed with concern. You see, while twins were a wonderful blessing when everything in a pregnancy went well. It is likely that many pregnancies with twins in the ancient world did not go well. Because of that, we're told that in the ancient world there was already something of a, of a bad omen connected to having twins. That is, there was, there was a reason for nervousness when someone realized they were having twins. Then the two babies in Rebecca's womb, they begin to jostle. They begin to struggle with one another. And that word struggled in verse 22 is a very strong word. 
It carries the idea of violent impact, impact that causes real damage. In fact, another, perhaps more common translation of the word is the word crushed. The babies were crushing one another within Rebecca's womb. It's the same word used in Judges 9 when a woman throws a millstone from the top of a tower and crushes Abimelech's skull. You can see why Rebecca asked the question she asked. You see it there in verse 21. If it is, I'm sorry, verse 22. If it is thus, why is this happening to me? It's interesting, in the Hebrew, the question literally reads this way. If so, why am I? If so, why am I? It appears that Rebecca may have been brought to the point of despair. That the jostling within her was so bad that she was beginning to think that the children were probably not going to survive and that she might not survive either. Why is this happening to her? They had waited this long for for this glorious arrival of a baby and and now it, it looks like things may go very, very badly. What is God doing here? Rebecca seeks answers. We're told that she inquires of the Lord. This might mean that she simply went directly to God in prayer. But usually this idea of inquiring, this word inquires when used in the Old Testament, it refers to going to a representative of God, someone authorized to speak for God. And so in Rebecca's case, it it might be that she and Isaac sought out someone, perhaps like Melchizedek, whom we've met earlier, someone like that who who would intercede for them and, and be able to bring them an answer from God of what was happening within her. However she went about it, Rebecca did get an answer. We find it in verse 23. And the Lord said to her, notice... What follows is centered in your Bible translation, or should it, it should be. This is no longer prose. This is now poetry. What God speaks to Rebecca is a carefully crafted, memorable verse of prophecy that would be well known by God's people from the days of Rebecca to our own day. And here's what God said. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Everything happens for a reason. Rebecca, here's the reason for the pain that you are going through. These two boys are going to become two nations, and they will not be friendly to one another. Already, these boys are bent in animosity towards one another. One of them is going to become stronger than the other, and it isn't the one you think. It's not going to be the firstborn. No, the older is going to serve the younger. Okay? So the struggle that is happening in Rebecca's womb is indicative of what's going to come when these boys grow and what's going to happen with their descendants and the nations that come from them. So that, that's good to know. But, but why, is, why are they fighting now? Why are these, these boys already struggling as unborn children? Well, the answer seems to be that this is happening in order to show that the future that is coming is of God. 
that it is God who has determined that history is going to unfold this way. If they had not struggled, if they had not struggled in Rebecca's womb, but only later, after they were born, we might say, well, this was simply the path that they chose. We might say that, that this was simply the way their environment had conditioned them to be. Well, they had terrible parents. That's why they grew up to fight all the time. That's why, that's why their descendants were, turned out to hate each other. It's Isaac and Rebecca's fault. We might say that it was just chance that things worked out this way, that, that two nations coming from two brothers would become enemies. But because of what is happening in this moment, in Rebecca's womb, and because of the Word of God that has just been delivered, we can be sure that none of those are sufficient answers to explain what's going to happen. Ultimately, fundamentally, at the very root of it all, it is the sovereign will and purpose of God that has ordained all that's about to come about for Jacob, for Esau, for their descendants. The struggle of these unborn babies in Rebekah's womb is, is a sign, it's a pledge of sorts of what is to come. So here is this difficult doctrine of predestination. Namely, that God determines the future of human beings. God declares what will come of Jacob. God declares what will come of Jacob. God declares what will come of Esau. God declares what will become of their descendants. God can declare the end from the beginning. Why? Because He's the one who wrote the story. He's the author of history. He has already scripted the roles that Jacob is going to play, that Esau is going to play, that their descendants are going to play. You see, we've spent time looking at this doctrine on a few occasions before. And we've already seen many of the verses that, that teach this truth, right? We know that not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from our Father's will. We've heard Lamentations 3, 37-38. Just remember this. Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? See, Jeremiah says whatever it is, whether it is good or whether it is bad, it comes because God has commanded for it to come. Yes, a man's, a man's mind plans his way, but the Lord orders his steps. Proverbs 16.9 So it was God who ordained for me to exist and for you to exist. It was God who ordained what family you would come from, who you would be born to, and what part of the world and in what century you would be born. It was God who gave you your talents and your abilities, and all of your unique gifts. Right? Paul asked the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? God has predestined the day we will die in the circumstances of our death. Job says about man, his days are determined and the number of his months is with you. Even the words that we speak have been ordained by God. 
Proverbs 16.1 The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. God is not the author of evil, but it is by His work of hardening hearts and withholding spiritual light that people sin. So in Isaiah 63.17 when God's people were made aware that they had been evil, they had been wicked, they had been rebellious towards their God, in a moment of realization, they cry out, O Lord, why do You make us wander from Your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear You not? You see, there is nothing outside the scope of God's decrees. What His mouth has commanded to come to pass. He has foreordained all that comes to pass, including the future of human beings. Rebecca, here's what's going to happen. Let me tell you, this is a part of my plan. This is a part of my purpose. God determines the future of human beings. That's the doctrine of predestination. Now, the primary objection that people often have concerning that doctrine is that it denies the free will of man. Could not Jacob and Esau have chosen a different path? Could not they have made things turn out differently than the way God had declared that they would turn out? If God has already scripted my life and declared the end from the beginning... What does that mean? I'm just living out the part He wrote for me? And really, I shouldn't even be held accountable for my actions. I shouldn't be held responsible. He wrote them. Well, the Bible teaches us not only the doctrine of predestination, but the doctrine of human responsibility. Within the scope of God's decrees, we still choose to do what we want to do. Esau is going to choose to give up his birthright. Part of God's decrees? Yes. Part of Esau choosing to do that because he wanted to do that? Yes. Listen, for example, to Isaiah 66, 3 and 4. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering is like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense is like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways. Their souls delight in their abominations. And I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them Because when I called, they did not answer. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. By the way, these are the same people who just three chapters earlier were saying, God, why do you harden our hearts so that we do not follow you? And now God, looking at the same people, says, you've chosen to do this. You've delighted in your ways. So the Bible teaches both the predestination of God and human responsibility. The responsibility for sin belongs to people who choose to indulge in it. So the teaching of the Bible, as difficult as it may be for us to grasp or to to work out, is that God foreordains all that comes to pass, and yet He is not the origin of evil, and He justly holds people responsible for their actions. 
The other thing to realize when we see God declaring, here's the future of people, and He can outright say that because He's ordained it, we need to realize that when we talk about free will, we're really only talking about man's ability to choose to do what he wants to do. And this does have limits. I can will to fly around this room. I'll do it right now. But I didn't fly. I didn't fly because I don't have the ability to make it happen. You see, my will is not completely free to do what it wants because there are some things that I am incapable of doing. My will is incapable of making me fly in the circumstances I'm in right now. Put me on a plane, that's different. In this circumstance, my will can will it all it wants. It won't happen. Well, in the same way, our Bible says that before we are saved, our wills are incapable of doing good. Incapable. That our wills, though free in one sense, we can do what we want to do, are still slaves in another sense. We're slaves to sin. All we want to do are things that are tainted by sin. It's only by the grace of God that our wills are made capable of doing any real, eternal, lasting good. Something that bothers some Christians, and I remember this bothering me when I was first encountering passages like this one in which God is predetermining the roads that people will take, is this. Predestination means that if my life was scripted ahead of time, That means my love for God was scripted ahead of time. And doesn't that kind of mean that the only reason I love God is because He ordained for me to love Him? And isn't that an artificial kind of love? Shouldn't real love be freely given and offered up? Is it right for God to force my love to Him? And if He has to force my love to Him, is it really love? Well, the truth, though, is that ultimately all love comes from God. Every good thing in this world has its origin in God. I would simply ask you, if you love God, where did that love come from? How did it come into your heart so that you could express it to God? You know the answer. We love God because He first loved us. God pours His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit as we believe on Jesus and then we reverberate that love that He's just poured into us back to Him in worship and obedience and service. The truth of the matter is that the love we have for God, the love that we express to God is actually the love of God poured into us being expressed back to Him. It's really God loving Himself through us. All love is God's, and all of God's love is theocentric. It centers on Him. God loves all that is good with an infinite love, and it is He who is the fountain and essence of all that is good. Or to put it differently, God's love is Christocentric. It is centered on the image of Himself, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God foreordained, sovereignly, puts His love for Jesus in our hearts. We don't feel forced to love Jesus. Do you feel forced to love Jesus? I hope not. We delight to love Jesus. We really do choose voluntarily to love Jesus from the depth of our souls because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. 
And yet that love for Jesus was given to us by God as a part of His sovereign plan, and now it goes forth to Jesus in worship and obedience. In other words, God loves God, His Son, who is God. God loves God through us. Which is what the whole universe is about. God loving the Son through us and the Son loving the Father through us. You see, history is not ultimately about us. It's about God delighting in His own awesome character, His own awesome attributes. It's it's about the Father delighting in the Son and the Son delighting in the Father. That love, the the love of God for God, the, the love of the Father for the Son and the love for the Father, that love is the genuine article. It is the purest and truest and the ultimate definition of what real love is. That love is the highest and best love in the universe. The love of God for God. The love of Father for Son and Son for Father. It's the truest love there could ever be. And if you are a Christian, that's the love that God has put into your heart. That is the love that you are expressing each and every day as you follow Christ. In other words, the love that you have for God is not an artificial thing. Indeed, because of predestination, because of the sovereign purposes of God, the love that you have in your heart for Christ is the truest kind of love in the world. It's the Father's love for the Son. It's divine love given to you through the Holy Spirit. Some people seem to think that the will of a person is the one thing in the world that God will not influence or control. They think that our wills are somehow sacred, and so so God would certainly never influence the wills of Jacob and Esau. No, God must have simply looked ahead to see what decisions they would make. Certainly He did not influence their wills so that they would live according to the purpose He had set forth. I remember as a kid wondering why God didn't just save everybody. Why didn't God just bring everybody to heaven? And when I asked that question, I was told that it was because God would not force anyone to be saved. That it had to be of our own free will. As I got older, I really did not like that logic. Because it seemed to me that when sinners were being tormented in hell for all eternity, that they would wish with everything within them that God would have forced them into heaven. Oh God... Why didn't you drag me kicking and screaming into heaven? I know that of my own free will, I did not choose to believe on Jesus. Why didn't you make me? If you had loved me, Father, you would have made me love you. You would have made me trust you. How can this be love, letting me choose willingly to be in hell? Any loving father will keep his child from running out into a busy highway no matter how much the free will of that child wants to. We wouldn't say that real love means, well, this is my child, but that child has a free will and real love is letting that child do what the child wants to do. That's that's not love. Love is putting limits on that will. Love is saying, I know you want to go that way, but for my love for you, I'm bringing you this way. In other words, it works the other way around. It's not God loves people, so He would never force people into heaven. No, it's God loves people, and so He changes their hearts and compels them and causes them and does ultimately bring them into heaven by the force of His awesome will. Remember, God speaking to Paul, it's useless to kick against the goads, Paul. You're mine. (laughs) Fight it all you want. I'm going to win. You're going to come with me. You're going to be my servant. 
It's the way it is for all of us. You see, the fact that we would elevate free will to this thing as if it's some sacred thing or some glorious thing that that God would never dare touch, that God would never dare influence, is really a picture of how self-centered and how self-exalting man really is. But listen to Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And I would simply ask you this, if the king's heart's in the hand of the Lord and God turns it wherever he wills, do you think your heart's any different? So when we think of Jacob and Esau, and we, sh- we-, we should understand that these two men are going to make real choices, these men are going to make choices with real consequences for which they are going to be truly held responsible, and yet all of this will fall under the sovereign plan of God that he has just declared to Rebekah. History will unfold exactly as He has ordained. There's lots of mystery here. But this is not a God who is aloof from His creation. This is not a God of moralistic, therapeutic deism. This is the God who really exists. This is the God who works all things for His glory. This is the true God before whom you one day will stand and give an account. We're not going to talk about the doctrine of election tonight, but the doctrine of election is an implication of predestination. If God predetermines the future of every human being, then that means that God makes choices about every human being. He elects certain people for certain things and other people for other things. So so when God was writing the story of Justin Nail's life, He ordained that I would be born, He elected that I would be born in North Carolina. For many, many other people, He had a different plan. He elected that they would be born elsewhere. You see, if if predestination is true and and it's undeniable in the pages of Scripture, then election is too because God can't, can't foreordain and plan the lives of everyone without making choices. Election is simply God making choices. Now, let me mention just one more objection to this doctrine of predestination. We'll we'll close with this. Last Sunday, we spent both our morning and our evening services hitting really hard on the subject of prayer, especially intercessory prayer. Isaac prayed for his wife, and she conceived... The objection that sometimes comes, however, is this one. If God has already foreordained everything that comes to pass, why should we pray? What difference can our prayers really make if these things are true? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever asked that question? Well, on this objection, I'm going to toss the ball to to Charles Spurgeon. I think he answers this very well. In a sermon on prayer, Spurgeon deals with this issue, and here's what he says. Another objection has been raised that is very ancient indeed, and it has the appearance of great force. It is raised not so much by skeptics as by people who hold to a part of the truth, and it's this. Prayer can certainly produce no results because the decrees of God have already settled everything. And those decrees are immutable, unchangeable. Now, 
Here's how Spurgeon answers the objection. We have no desire to deny the assertion that the decrees of God have settled all events. Certainly, it is our full belief that God has foreknown and predestined everything that happens in heaven above or on the earth beneath. I fully believe that the foreknown station of a reed by the river is as fixed as the station of a king, and that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is just as steered as the stars in their courses. Predestination embraces the great, it embraces the little, it reaches to all things. And so the question is, why pray? But might it not as logically be asked, why breathe? Why eat? Why move? Why do anything? We have an answer that satisfies us, namely, our prayers are in the predestination. That God has as much ordained His people's prayers as anything else. So when when we pray, we are producing the links in the chain of already ordained facts. Destiny decrees that I should pray. I pray. Destiny decrees that I will be answered. The answer comes to me. But we have a better answer than all of this. Our Lord Jesus Christ comes forward. And he says to us, My dear little children, the decrees of God need not trouble you. There is nothing in them inconsistent with your prayers being heard. I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Who is the one that says this? It's he who has been with the Father from the beginning. It's He who knows what the purposes of the Father are and what the heart of the Father is. It is Jesus who told us in another place, the Father Himself loveth you. Now, since He knows the decrees of the Father and He knows the heart of the Father, He can tell us with the absolute certainty of an eyewitness that there is nothing in the eternal purposes of God that conflict with this truth. That He who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. He has read the decrees from the beginning to the end. Jesus is the one who has taken the book. He's loosened the seven seals thereof. He has declared the ordinances of heaven, and he tells you there is nothing in them inconsistent with your bended knee, with your streaming eye, and with the Father's opening up the windows of heaven to shower upon you the blessings that you seek. So you see, this doctrine, this truth, that God declares the end from the beginning, declares what's going to happen with Jacob, what's going to happen with Esau before they're even born, before they've done anything good or bad, it's already determined. That does not mean that we shouldn't pray or do anything else in the Christian life. Rather, this doctrine should cause us to have very high, very lofty thoughts of God. This should exalt the wisdom of God in our eyes. This should cause us to see we have a huge God. A God who understands things that are forever going to be mysterious to us. We should see God as the exalted God that He is. And because we esteem our God so highly, we should be motivated all the more to take our every need and every concern to Him. Who do you think is more likely to pray? Those who have low thoughts of God or those who have high thoughts of God? 
I hope a high view of God will cause us to be all the more eager to go to Him in prayer. The God who loves us, the God who calls us to pray, the God who promises to hear and to answer our prayers is the same God who has already scripted what the answer will be. So when God says, call on me and I will answer you, you can know He's absolutely serious and He will do what He has said He will do. So I close this way. Let there be no adherence in this room to the American religion of moralistic, therapeutic deism. No, let us worship and let us trust and let us love the true God, the one for whom we exist, the one who is working all things for the good of His people and for the glory of His own holy name. Let's pray.